Welcome to the Wickedly Smart Women podcast, featuring stellar conversations with emerging and established Wickedly Smart Women. Thanks for joining us today as we celebrate women who are committed, care deeply, and have the courage to take action and create conscious change all around the world. Now here's your Wickedly Smart host, Angel B. Hartwell. Welcome to another episode of the Wickedly Smart Women podcast, where we celebrate Wickedly Smart Women and provide our listeners with a wealth of wisdom along with immediately actionable steps to be smarter, spunkier, and more successful in their impact and their leadership. This is your host, Angel B. Hartwell, and today we welcome our special guest, Marianne Williamson. Marianne is a Democratic candidate running for the office of the President of the United States in 2024. She's a highly successful entrepreneur, best-selling author, political activist, and globally influential spiritual thought leader. For over three decades, she's been a leader in spiritual and progressive circles. She's the author of 15 books, four of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. Williamson founded Project Angel Food, a nonprofit organization that has delivered more than 14 million meals to ill and dying homebound patients since 1989. The group was created to help people suffering from the ravages of HIV AIDS. She has also worked throughout her career on poverty, anti-hunger, and racial reconciliation issues. In 2004, she co-founded the Peace Alliance and supports the creation of a U.S. Department of Peace. Williamson ran for Democratic nomination for president in 2020 as well. I am so delighted to have you here today. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to start by saying, Marianne, that as a a woman, a wickedly smart woman, you are one of the people who has highly influenced me in my own personal life, both spiritually as well as politically. And it was only in your 2020 run that I had awareness given to me as a result of your campaign around some of the things that I didn't even know were happening, including here in the state where I live in New Hampshire, that there are children that are going hungry. So I'd love to have you speak right now to what inspired you when you could have sat on your laurels, really, Marianne, for all you've done in the world. What has inspired you and continues to inspire you to bring this message out that you are running for president and you have these reforms that you want to create? Well, once you see, you can't unsee. So like when you said you realized all these children are hungry. When you realize that 12,000 children on this planet starve every day, when you realize that a billion people on this planet are called the bottom billion, they live on less than $1 a day. When you realize all the suffering that's out there, you can't unrealize it. And for those of us who take the path of spirituality seriously, there is no serious spiritual or religious path anywhere that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. And in my own field, I saw how much, how many times the spiritual journey had been turned into a kind of ersatz faux version of itself, more of a capitalist venture than a genuinely serious path. People who would talk about spirituality, but not ask, you know, what is God's will for my life? What is love's will for my life, regardless of your words? So I'm just trying to practice what I preach here. I do believe that the ultimate transformation of the world comes from internal change. 
But it ultimately has to be both. Martin Luther King said we need external changes in our circumstances and internal shifts in our souls. You could say I rest on my laurels. I don't know how I would be screaming at television all the time and feeling like in the final analysis, I didn't do what I came here to do. You know, I saw on the internet an old interview. I don't know if it was the 50s or the 60s with the philosopher Eric Fromm. And he said, material achievement is meant to be a means. And we've turned it into an end. He said, and that will be the decline of America. And I think that's true. I think the purpose of money is so that you don't have to think about money. I think the purpose of material achievement is to get to the point where then we can get about the work of why we really came to the world. And we got stuck at a certain place. And so, yeah, I mean, I had sold some books and had a very, very nice career, but I don't think that was ever supposed to be the be all and end all. For me, it was how can I use this as a platform to do something that would be of use and of service? And Mm -hmm. that's how I've seen my running for office. Beautiful. Well, you have a very comprehensive policy platform, Marianne, and the areas where I feel the wickedly smart women who are listening are going to really resonate is around the idea of the Department of Peace, around the idea of Department of Children and Youth. So I'd love to have you speak a little bit about how you have, you know, coalesced your thinking around these different areas and why you're advocating for them in your run for presidency? Well, back when Dennis Kucinich was a congressman, I became aware that he was uh, leading in Congress the effort to pass a bill to establish a Department of Peace. And I became an activist around that. And it still has not been accomplished, but I would certainly champion it as president. I think a lot of people don't realize that peace building is an actual thing and that there are four factors which, when present, statistically indicate that there will be a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence. Expanded economic opportunities for women, expanded educational opportunities for children, a reduction of violence against women, and amelioration of unnecessary human despair. And I see it as preventative. You know, one of the things on my website is root cause healing, where you take a different kind of paradigmatic look at public policy. Because right now, our political viewpoints, at least the one that dominates, is stuck in the 20th century in a very mechanistic way of looking at the world, where you don't really look at causes, you just look at solutions. And then your solutions tend to be like allopathic medicine. You're just trying to suppress or eradicate the symptom. So we have to look at what causes sickness, not just how to treat sickness, and what causes violence, not just how to treat violence. People have asked me, for instance, what would a Department of Peace do right now with the Israel-Palestine situation? The question isn't what would a Department of Peace do with the Israel-Palestine situation now, so much as it would have done a lot to help prevent it if the ideas at its core had been taken seriously. Beautiful. So let's talk about this idea of a child and youth department as well, because I think that many of our women listeners are going to have resonance with that. What's your vision for that? Well, I think that we know it's not something that people don't know, that America's children are in too many cases at risk. 
We have, for instance, hungry children here in the United States. You're in New Hampshire, aren't you? I am, yeah. Okay. There are hungry children in New Hampshire. There are hungry children all over this country, in the richest country in the world who shouldn't have hungry children. And it goes beyond that. We have children who are traumatized before kindergarten. I have had kindergarten principals tell me they have children on suicide watch, elementary school kids. We have all over this country public schools that have trauma rooms. We're losing teachers because teachers are saying, this is what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for crowd control. I didn't sign up for helping a child with a behavioral problem at the expense of everyone else in this classroom because the school does not have the resources to help the child with a behavioral problem. Not to even mention that we have elementary school students who are praying every morning that they will not get shot at school today. Mm. So the to me, the state of America's children is kind of collateral damage that is created by a very cold, soulless, unethical economic system. Children do not, they're not old enough to vote, so they're not a constituency. And they're not old enough to work, so they don't have any financial leverage. And so their needs in this country are just consistently neglected unless they have privileged parents. Mm. And that's what America is becoming. It's becoming a country contrary to the original ideal, contrary to what we were brought up to believe it it was and was supposed to be, where only those with financial privilege are able to provide their children with easy access to things which should be the minimum that is afforded to every American child. There are millions of American children who go to schools where there aren't even the resources to teach them how to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, then the chances of high school graduation become drastically diminished and the chances of incarceration drastically increased. Mm. Well, let's talk about the economic system. I mean, you know, you mentioned the root cause on your website. Can you share with our listeners what you see the root cause is of all of the inequity and the violence and the chaos that's going on in the world at this moment, where we allow hundreds of thousands of children to be hungry? Well, there's not one answer to all of those things. But in terms of so much of the economic anxiety in the United States, a lot of this can be traced back to what has been a systematic destruction of our middle class. And that began in the 1980s. So in the 1970s, the average American worker could afford a house, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, and could afford to send their children to college. That's called the middle class that is thriving. Back in the 1980s, this huge con, basically, was perpetrated against the average American. And it was an idea that if we concentrated on giving more money to stockholders at the expense of other stakeholders, the workers in a company are the stakeholder, the environment is a stakeholder, the community is a stakeholder. But the idea here was that if we didn't worry about any of the stakeholders except the stockholders, that yes, the stockholder class would make a lot more money. But that would be good because then they would create jobs and then all that money would trickle down and it would lift all boats. Well, there's so much wrong with that because first of all, the business model of this paradigm is not job creation, it's job elimination and worker exploitation. So what ended up happening was squeezing benefits out of the lives of the average American worker. It had to do with deregulating so that the environment wasn't taken care of, 
the community wasn't taken care of. It had to do with a much greater wealth in that stockholder class, because along with the deregulation, along with the squashing of unions, was also massive tax cuts for the very, very wealthy. Also, you know, before Ronald Reagan was president, a CEO could not be paid, for instance, with stock options. As soon as a CEO is paid with stock options, then by definition, there's a conflict of interest. Do I mistreat my own workers by squeezing more out of them? Or do I myself make more money? Also, the stock buybacks, that is a regular artificial stimulation of economic good for the, for the richest, was not legal. All of this has led over the last 50 years to a $50 trillion transfer of wealth out of the hands of 90% of our Americans. And it's completely hollowed out our middle class to the point where 70% say that they live with constant economic anxiety. Millions of people can't live on just one job. You know, when I described the thriving middle class of the 1970s to you, at that time, in addition to everything else I said, one couple, only one person had to work for them to be able to support a family of four. Mm. Yeah. Two people and have to work and couldn't support a family of one today. <laughs> that's exactly. The, I mean, if, if, you know, somebody said to me the other day, Americans can't afford America. Right. Right. So we have this huge wealth inequality. We have an economy that works for about 20% of Americans. So 20% of Americans, good. I mean, I celebrate that, but we live on an island that is surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. Mm. And too many are living without economic hope or opportunity. And people are dying from deaths of despair. It's impossible to overestimate the role that this really unjust economic system that has developed among us has on the average American. We don't have universal health care just because of insurance companies. We have over a million people rationing their insulin because of the pharmaceutical companies. We have carcinogens in our food because of big food companies. We have chemicals in our pesticide that are deadly because of chemical companies. We don't have common sense gun safety laws because of the greed of gun manufacturers. We're ramping up rather than ramping down fossil fuel extraction because of big oil. And we have we have participated in wars that have very little to do with anything other than price gouging of the Pentagon on the part of the defense contractors. This is like a matrix of corporate overlords at this point. Mm. This is economic tyranny at this point, because the tentacles of all that financial force and power, if you have, on one hand, the, the unbelievable, not only tax cuts for these entities, but also subsidies, we pay billions of dollars in taxpayer money to these companies that then use it to create products with which they price gouge the very people whose taxes paid for those products. Or they use but it for the stock buybacks. Which is the same thing, really, right. <laughs> if you think about it. And, and that is coupled with the fact that ever since Citizens United, those very entities can exert such financial, undue financial influence on Congress because basically what they can do to influence who we, who we elect. Mm. So this is a situation at this point that in my mind is not going to fix itself. The status quo will not disrupt itself. And that's why I'm running. And I think a lot of people feel the same way that people have to step in now. Mm, beautiful. Well, we're going to take a quick break, Marianne. But when we come back, we're going to talk about money, misogyny, and how we get your message to more people. 
Right now, though, Wickedly Smart Women, we could use your help. If you're enjoying this show, please consider joining our community, making a donation at wickedlysmartwomen.com and sharing with your lovely lady friends that might benefit from our content. Help a gal out and let your sisters, mothers, daughters, friends, and colleagues know about the show so we can serve them too. I want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners who are downloading, rating, and reviewing all over the world. We're welcoming thousands and thousands of downloads. We're now downloading in 116 countries. And so we're going to shout out today to our listeners in Israel, in Palestine, and in the United States. And we will be right back with Marianne Williamson. The Wickedly Smart Women podcast is brought to you by the Wealthy Life Mentor. Women, are you on the edge knowing that life is calling you to make a change? Are you ready to be part of the evolution of what it means to be a wickedly smart woman creating your wealthy life by design, a life that is an extraordinary work of art? Angel B. Hartwell, the Wealthy Life Mentor, is hired by women in transition, women just like you who want to break through to their brilliance, become clear on the value of their wisdom, and embody a beauty-filled, balanced life of shameless self-expression. Discover your wealthy life readiness by taking the quiz at quiz.wealthylifementor.com. And we are back with Marianne Williamson. If anything that Marianne has said in the first half of the show resonates with you and you are interested in finding out more about her policies that she's laid out, extensive policies that she's laid out on her platform, or you're considering volunteering or donating, please go to Marianne2024.com where you will find a very comprehensive platform of all of her positions on all of the things which we don't have time to get into today on today's show. Marianne, I want to talk to you about money. You know, we were talking before we went to the break about the economic disparity and the the evisceration of the middle class and the transfer of 50 billion trillion, 50 trillion dollars out of the middle class to the upper classes. You know, a campaign like this takes money, I would imagine. Right. And most of the campaigns, the traditional campaigns that are out there are being funded by some kind of dark money or PACs. And your campaign, as I understand it, is grassroots. So can you talk about asking for money and raising money and the process of how money is influencing the political process? Well, it does cost a lot of money to run for president. We have a good team, but we need to scale up. So I'll have one person in a position when I should have three people in that, or I'll have one office when I should have two offices and so forth. So like you said, it's grassroots, which means no corporations are giving money and and no PACs are giving money or anything like that. Alex of Tocqueville talked about the habits of democracy. And one of the habits of democracy that people who really want to see political change need to cultivate is financial giving. And sometimes people think things like, well, all I could give is $10 or all I could give is $25. So what's the point? When in fact, in a grassroots campaign, it's that $3, the $10, the $50, et cetera, that means so much. The second thing that has been such a big challenge for me, Angie, is that because there's been this media blackout, the media has pretended I don't exist. So people don't see me. 
So people go, well, she's not even out there. You know, people like to invest in a winner. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, the DNC has created this narrative that it just has to be Biden. I'm not a viable candidate, according to them. So then people say, well, she can't win. So I'm not going to put my money behind it. I mean, I wish her well, but I don't want to put my money behind it. So it has created quite a sad state of affairs because like, for instance, right now, I've got to get on television hmm. because we, we have to figure out a way to override and compensate for the fact that the mainstream media has done this erasure. It's happening, but will it happen fast enough? That has to do with whether or not people will you know, go to Marianne2024.com and donate. Mm. And as I understand it, yes, you mentioned the smaller donations, but there's also a larger donation that people, oh, people can, can, can give up to about 60, that? Yeah. yeah, people can give up to $6,600. And I sometimes wonder, I think about all of this, of course, all the time. And, you know, in, in the marketplace, if you have a business and you just don't have enough customers, that's the market talking to you. I don't think our issue is that we don't have enough customers. It's that we don't have enough paying customers. Mm. Or and you don't have enough. Really, you don't have enough exposure. The market, you're not getting the exposure. Which is why people market, don't see right? me. They don't right. even know that I'm running. Right. So, for instance, the biggest group that, that we do have is college students, mm -hmm. Gen Z. Well, they're not sitting around with big donation money available to them. Great. Well, Thankfully, they are donating. They're they're volunteering. They're putting in their and $10, $25, yes, $50. I hope All right. so, yes. All right. Well, let's talk about the media and the, the misogyny and the blackout and all of that. Because, you know, women in general have been marginalized for thousands of years. It's only been in the last, you know, maybe our lifetimes that we've actually had an opportunity to have any kind of a voice. So it's not surprising that there's been pushback, but it is a little surprising that the pushback has been so, so intense. What do you think needs to happen, Marianne, to get the, it's really less about you and more about the message? What do we think needs to happen now to elevate the message so that more people can receive the message because it's really that I feel that it's that transmission. It, it happened for me when I saw you, when I heard you speak, when I heard you talk about the issues that I had no awareness of, it activated me and, you know, woke me up to some things that I didn't know. So <clears throat> what can we do collectively as women to be taken more seriously and to have our message of peace and justice and right relationship with money and all the other things that are on your platform, climate change, all of those things to be taken seriously and to be funded fully. In the aspect of my career before I started running for office, I never felt misogyny at work. I never felt that opportunities were less for me because I was a woman. In politics, it's astonishing. I don't even think I realized what misogyny was. Not really, because I'd never felt it directed against me. So I'll give you an example. If Ron DeSantis loses his campaign manager, whether he let the man go or the man left, same with Bobby Kennedy, it's mentioned that that person is no longer campaign manager. If it's me, oh, she's a crazy woman and she's so hard to work for. And, and obviously her campaign is in disarray and she doesn't know how to manage it. 
some of the hit pieces against me, I don't, I'm not sure they would have stuck if there were a man. Mm. Some of the things I've done with my life that should be taken very seriously, that are minimized, peripheralized, ah, she did that. Like David Pakman says, you, you mentioned in the introduction that an organization that I founded has fed 14 million meals. Well, now actually it's fed 16 million meals. So David Pakman was saying, well, if somebody from the nonprofit world, and then somebody pointed out, well, I founded that organization. He said, yeah, well, she's from some little nonprofit. An organization that has fed 16 million meals is not some little nonprofit. Mm. So the concept of belittling is amazing. Now, what do we need to do? Mm. Well, one of the things that has saddened me is that women, yourself obviously not included, many not included, have not stood up. Now, when I was growing up, the first phase of feminism in the 1970s, sisterhood was and he's understood to be an essential factor of what we call women's liberation, that none of us would get there unless all of us got there. It was really understood you had to be there for your sisters. And I'm saddened, but also shocked by the kind of witch burning that I have experienced on a psychological level and the silence of so many women around me. Right. Well, so, you know, I think we're also the whole country, the world, there's a lot of trauma happening in the world right now. And one of the areas where I think that you shine is in your trauma informed, you're very trauma informed. And if we think about it, what would it take to open up the hearts of your sisters to support you? What would it take to have a woman in the White House, have a mother in the White House who's bringing the the philosophy for a more evolved way of life? There is nothing more offensive to the patriarchy than a confident woman. And I'm seeing in this experience how deep the suspicion goes that any woman who speaks her mind and misogyny, that suspicion has been internalized by so many women. Is it fear of ancient witch burning? I think one of the things I've seen is if I'm deemed sort of politically radioactive, then I've seen among both men and women, well, if I say I agree with her, then I'll be radioactive. Mm. Some of the mud that's been thrown at her will then be thrown at me. Mm. Now, one of the things that I've talked about in my lectures is that I read years ago about a study that they did, and it was saying if a woman shows up in a meeting, let's say, expressing a more humanitarian value, and it rubs the system the wrong way because the system that was being discussed is predicated on not caring about humanitarian values, that she will be shunned until one person says, I agree with her. And the silence of some people, when, you know, we've always said, if you see anything, say anything. If they, you know, we now know in the society, if somebody makes a racist comment, you're going to get called on it or you should get called on it. But even terms like Karen, there is no equivalent of that. Now she's a Karen. I mean, it's, why, why are women like not standing up to this? 
Mm. And, you know, you see some ancient horrors these days. Anti-Semitism is an example. Some ancient, ancient, ancient prejudices that show their ugly face sometimes. Mm. Well, Marianne. So when you ask me, how do you break through it? I don't know. Mm. Well, know. you know, Marianne, I think I think it's really about the message more than anything. It's really about the message. And what I will say is I agree with you on all of your policy platforms. So let's ring the bell for wherever two or more are gathered. There is love. And there are a lot of people that are around you and who are supporting your campaign right now. So my last question to you before we close is I'd love to have you see yourself in the Oval Office, at the desk, okay. on your first day, okay, as President of the United States of America, what are the first three things that you will do the day you take office? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say that that desk will be put in a warehouse. <laughs> Great. A lot of wars have been planned on that desk. Queen Victoria gave it. It was very nice if we put it in a warehouse, some other president can take it out. Enough with all those straight lines, that straight lines, well, there's, no, there's going to be a lot of oval and circles and things. That's number one. It's not going to be such a man cave. That's number one. What am I going to do, though? First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to cancel the Willow Project. The Willow Project is the $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil extraction project on the north slopes of, of Alaska. I will definitely cancel that. Second thing, I will call for an audit of every cent that is spent by the Pentagon, and I'm sure they'll fail it again. But uh, people will know that I'm on to that and that the, the bloating of the defense budget will not be okay under me. Next thing I'll do is I will cancel every contract that union-busting companies have with the U.S. government. I will call together the greatest minds in this country on early childhood development because if we, for instance, if we don't teach a child to read by the age of 10, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased, the chances of, of incarceration drastically increased. So I want to be very involved. This is why I want to establish the Department of Children and Youth, the Peacemakers Department of Peace I want to establish. And we get to work on all the things that I said I want to do, whether it has to do with Medicare for all, tuition-free college and tech school, guaranteed living wage. The president has, the executive, chief executive has three major tools. Number one has to do with who you appoint to head the departments. So these departments, these agencies and the government have been captured by corporate interests. So that's not who's going to run these agencies when I'm there. Second is you set the moral vision for our country. You know, Abe Franklin Roosevelt said the primary responsibility, or he said the most important job of the presidency is not, he said, administrative, but moral leadership. I want to paint a picture of what a moral economy looks like, which is one in which you do not deny the needs of children. You do not deny the needs of people or the needs of the earth, just so that a very small group of corporate interests can just make more and more and more money. You don't do that. Now, the president is one of three co-equal branches of government, I wouldn't just have a magic wand and be able to make these things happen. But I would 
use the bully pulpit to talk about them. And within the purview of what is the the rights of the president, I would use executive orders and every other means to make sure that we were moving in the direction, away from the direction of oligarchy, where just a few rich people basically run everything, to back to a, a real democracy where the will of the people. We now have a situation where in policy after policy after policy, Our government does more to increase the ability of those who already have a lot to get more. And these policies make it harder for the average American to even survive. That that will change under my administration. And it would be a mother in the White House uh, because mama wouldn't have it. Beautiful. I love it, Marianne. Well, if there's one last thing you'd like to say to our listeners, what would it be? Just thank you to you. And you are such an example. I never see you that you're not encouraging. I never see you that you are not positive. I never see you that you're not real and blunt, but in a really good way. I never see you that you don't have a better idea about something. And I hope people, I mean, selfishly, I hope more and more people will emulate your behavior towards me, but the planet will be better off if people emulate your behavior in general. So my deep thanks to you. And I hope people realize what a major person you are. Oh, well, thank you. I personally thank you. Well, I personally thank you. You changed my life back in 19 something, 1990, 1999. I read A Return to Love and realized that I didn't love myself. And that started a lifelong journey of letting go of things that don't work anymore and embracing things that do. (laughs) We've all been on this path for so long and now we can pool the resources of all these lessons we've learned and help to uh, transform the country and transform the world the way we felt, you know, love transform our own lives. Mm, Beautiful. Well, we have to go. I know you have more things to do and more people to talk to. But uh, right now, thank you so much. listeners. We, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Listeners, we love feedback. Please let us know what you think of today's episode. Go right now to wickedlysmartwomen.com to join our community, share your takeaways, ask questions, or submit guest suggestions. Be sure to go to Marianne2024.com to, again, find out more about Marianne's policies and to volunteer. If any of our conversation resonated with you, certainly feel free to donate. Any amount is not not too small and any amount up to $6,600 is not too big. Thanks again for tuning in. Keep your ears open and remember you are a wonderful woman. Thanks for tuning in, downloading and listening. Be sure to rate and review Wickedly Smart Women on Apple Podcasts and share with other women who can benefit from today's episode. Wickedly Smart Women is the premier podcast series for informing, activating, and inspiring the leader who carries profound wisdom and knows that now is the time to welcome wealth. We welcome your feedback and guest suggestions and invite you to subscribe to our mailing list to be notified of each new episode at wickedlysmartwomen.com.